Hello, my name is Mercedes Dormy, and welcome to Through the Portal, conversations around my project, Portal for Tovangar, which is part of the Monumental Perspectives collaboration between LACMA and Snapchat. Monumental Perspectives is an initiative that uses augmented reality to explore monuments and murals, representation, and history. Portal for Tovangar presents a portal between past, present, and potential future worlds, proposing a community healing opportunity and exploration of truth in understanding indigenous intrinsic knowledge. This project shifts away from memorializing heroes and singular events to engage the continued presence of Native people in Tovangar, present-day Los Angeles. These conversations will explore the multiple layers of information and experience that exist below the concrete, all around us, and above us every day. I welcome you to move between past, present, and future worlds as I speak with experts throughout the city of Los Angeles, my ancestral homelands of Tovangar. From archeology span and poetry to the stars, I invite you to take a walk, listen to the conversations, and see the land and sky through a new lens. Look up. You may be listening to this while the sun is out. And even though you can't see it right now, there are billions of stars above you. You may be listening to this at night. The city lights have made it difficult to see the cosmos, but it is there, as it has been for time immemorial. Close your eyes and imagine a sparkling sky, the very same one your ancestors looked upon with inevitable wonder and awe. What you are about to hear is a conversation between myself and Dr. Edwin C. Krupp, director of the Griffith Observatory. I have been visiting the Griffith Observatory since I was a little girl growing up in Los Angeles, and I am always impressed by our undeniable yet often overlooked relationship to the cosmos. Dr. Krupp's love for the sky started when he was a little boy, and his continued sense of awe and wonder encompasses not only the cosmos, but also knowledge of indigenous cave art sites that have been inspired by the stars as well. In this conversation, Dr. Krupp and I get lost in the magic of the cosmos and explore its connection to the Tongva people. Through this, we tangibly connect with the canopy of the sky. This is Dr. Ed Krupp, director of Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. Like most astronomers of my generation, and there were relatively fewer of them back when uh, I was a kid and, and thinking about such things, uh, I, as I say most of them, uh, came to astronomy uh, by one of the three vehicles that I think applied to everybody. And I know this is the case because I was in an American Astronomical Society conference meeting uh, when I was a graduate student at UCLA and an unremembered speaker talking to the whole group. And, and at those meetings at that time, almost all the astronomers in the U.S. would show up at those meetings. So you had a pretty good sample of the professional astronomy community. And that speaker said, 
How many of you decided to become an astronomer as a young child? And just about everybody in the room raised his or her hand. And then the speaker said, and how many of you decided to become an astronomer either because of a visit to a planetarium, a look through a telescope, or a book? And again, all the hands went up. Uh, and so I thought at that time, and I hadn't thought about the process of making astronomers, but I said, well, there you've got it. The recipe is very clear. Uh, you have young kids and then one of those three things and you're done. Uh, and in my case, I was eight years old and it was a book. I think of the observatory and going there. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles as well. And it does, it's, I feel like it's one of those sites that has always inspired awe. And so I guess my real interest in talking about the cosmos or the stars is, is really getting into how we connect with it on like a tangible level here and now. So I'm, I'm curious about that, how you kind of inspire that kind of tangible feeling or connection. Sure, we are first very much disconnected, uh, at least on a daily basis and nightly basis with the sky. Most people haven't a clue uh, about what time the sun comes up or where it is or whatever. And then they're always kind of astonished when they're put into an environment where that becomes a factor. And I've been in those circumstances frequently, particularly in connection with research on California Indian rock art and the sites that are allegedly astronomical. That connection to the sky goes, I think, you know, to deep, deep roots, probably long before uh, we were the kinds of uh, uh, bipedal upright primates that we are today. And people just seeing the sky as just another part of the environment. In fact, it's half of the environment. And, and so you see things going on there. And people very early on realized, at least for themselves, those things had meaning. And they had meaning because they were related to the things that are happening in their daily lives. And, and much of this is seasonal. And, and so when people look at the sky and they see, because we're pattern-seeking creatures, they see the sun doing things that are linked to the seasons, the moon in its way doing things that can be linked to the seasons, the stars, of course, being linked to the seasons, these become part of a package that, that people recognize is, is, is the whole thing in which they're immersed. And the physical understanding that we have today of how those aspects of the universe work uh, are, are, of course, very different from our ancestors. But that, that doesn't diminish at all the fact that people had to respond to the environment, had to be ready for its changes, anticipate them with wit, and then take advantage of them in a way that made uh, life sustainable. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny because I often, when I'm talking about this to groups of people about this kind of connectivity or feeling the connection, I usually make the joke that, you know, people don't, people don't think that uh, Los Angeles has seasons. Like it's, I grew up here and you can, it, it takes like a different tuning in, you know, to kind of be able to feel that. And so I, I think about that quite a bit of connecting into that. You know, you're absolutely right about the, the fact that one, people are oblivious and two, they're really there. And and I'm certainly guilty of this, or at least I was. My, uh, my parents moved out to Southern California in 1957. You know, I came from Illinois. There were seasons in Illinois, but uh, it, it took a while. But there's a there's a very uh, entertaining 
aspect of, of the seasonality. One, it is real. I mean, there's rain and there isn't rain. And that makes all the difference in the world. And what the plants are doing is tremendously uh, seasonal in its character. And of course, the people that were here and in living in that environment understood that implicitly. I'm very closely associated with Borough Flats. I was there in 1979 at the winter solstice when on John Romani's hunch, uh, and John was a, a local archaeologist along with his wife Gwen Romani and Dan Larson. John and, and Gwen have both passed away now. Dan is still alive. Um, but I had been invited out first to a different uh ostensibly Chumash site in the West San Fernando Valley for summer solstice the previous summer. And, and it was sort of a washout. Nothing interesting occurred. And it didn't, the site didn't really look like it had potential either to me. Although, uh, nobody was looking a lot at California sites at that time. There were a few. And of the most remarkable, and I didn't know about it at the time, was the La Rumorosa site just below the border. Uh, in Baja, in Kumyai territory. John organized a small party with the help of the chief fire agent. At that time, it was Rocketdyne, uh, so that we could be in there for winter solstice. And so, in fact, saw the first appearance of this triangle of, of light. Subsequently, we went back for summer solstice because John had another hunch. And again, his hunches, his hunches were rooted in very bad astronomy. But in fact, they turned out to be instinctively correct. And, and so there was a, a very um, fetching uh, summer solstice effect in a different part of the Burrow Flat site. You have this big slab, a vertical slab of rock with a line of cupules uh, just going right on the top of the slab, up at an angle fortuitously that goes right to the point on the horizon where the sun appears at summer solstice. So I've been very persuaded it was a quite intentional line of cupules. That's a really beautiful alignment when you think about this kind of fascination on, at different points that has a similar core interest, you know, but has different kind of technology around it. It's a it's a funny kind of happenstance, and yet it points to the point that you were making at the start, that we have an abiding relationship with the sky, even if we don't always remember it exactly. People, I think, tend to look um, very short-sightedly at how it is we make our way through the world. And we're just organisms like all of the other organisms on the planet, uh, and we have a few really remarkable attributes, the big brain being one of them. And you can attribute our success, however you want to interpret it, certainly to that in part, and of course the famous opposable thumb. But the fact is that we have been on, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a, a progressive path, but a path of evolution, human evolution, that involves everybody. And everybody on the planet has responded in different ways to the challenges that they meet in, in their environment, but ultimately they're inhabitants of Earth. And the job here is to figure out how do we manage to survive on Earth? And, and so we are in debt to everybody. And th that kind of sensibility, I think, just in itself, I mean, if you were to answer your own question, just having a sense of gratitude for that debt is a valuable resource for moving forward in terms of framing a person's perspective and then the actions that they're gonna undertake. Uh, astronomy, the sky, the cosmos, 
The one thing it does, no matter what for everybody, it prompts the big questions. People move to the big questions when they start dealing with the scale of the biggest, strangest, most distant, largest stuff there is in the universe that just makes you uh, move to the big questions. And those big questions then invite wonder, which is a satisfying feeling, uh, but also one of those basic elements of, of, of our brains and how they work. And then th that wonder, uh, it prompts then a quest for understanding. And the quest for understanding invests value in accurate descriptions of nature. Uh, people uh, have always been interested in accuracy. This is not something that's just a part of, of the modern era. And accurate representations of nature are in fact a tool for survival. And certainly part of my personal interest in any of this is that I am interested in our survival. And our survival has to do in part with the recognition that we are not occupying the universe. Uh, we're, we're really just another element of the universe. It's very entertaining, very remarkable. We don't know anything else like it, but it is a product of the cosmos. We are also just part of the 13.8 billion years worth of cosmic evolution. And the fact that it has produced uh, sentient beings in consciousness, we have no idea how that fits into the whole picture, but we do know it happened and it happened here. The elements in us are those elements produced by the stars and, and by uh, the, the supernovae, which are also the stars. And, and you, you don't get those elements any other way. They are produced in the stars. We would not be here were it not for the fact that that cosmic evolution occurred at that physical level. Most people don't feel a bond with an exploding star, but they should. They, they, they should feel it, you know, in, in, in every corpuscle of their blood that's going through there, because otherwise they, they wouldn't be there. It's incredible. We, of course, have gone bankrupt as far as the night sky is, is concerned. And, and we've been doing this for quite a long time. Uh, even when I was a kid, urban environments, whether they're in Southern California or out in, in the Midwest or whatever, limited your ability to see the night sky. But it was a lot easier then uh, to get out away from the urban environment. You didn't have to go terribly far uh, to be immersed once again under the uh, a full starry sky. And it was once possible to see the Milky Way from Los Angeles. Uh, and if you haven't experienced that night sky just because of when it happened to be born and how you've conducted your life, you have no idea how extraordinary the real night sky is, and there is, once you see it, there is no question, why did this command interest? It is rich, it is mysterious, it is dynamic, and it has elements that don't quite have the counterparts of the terrestrial realm. And that's the whole point. You know, they're up there, they're out of reach, visible to everybody, but you can't do anything with them. You can't manipulate them. And, and they give light, which is a unique quality. Uh, whether it happens to be the sun or the moon as, as disks in the sky, the stars retaining patterns or, or the planets as, as they move. But all of those things help to suggest uh, that we're dealing with something very different here. But it is very much that vaulting of the sky that is a, a, an immense architecture uh, over your head that is the cathedral effect. Uh, I mean, it's, it's partly why we build cathedrals in order to create that sensibility of the vault of the heavens. And so 
just the aesthetic and the emotional impact of the night sky, I think, remains profoundly for people once they give themselves a chance to re-encounter it. Where I have seen it change personally is very entertaining because here at Griffith Observatory, uh, we preserve the SARS like an endangered species on the dome of the planetarium. Today, from Los Angeles, and, and I, you know, I walk at night and, and obviously I'm up at the observatory. And, and so there are a few bright stars that are always visible. Uh, you can make out the Big Dipper, Orion in winter when it shows. I mean, they're, they're there. The planets, of course, are accessible. The changes of the moon and, and of course, gorgeous things that the sun does. I mean, one of the great attractions up here for people is just coming up to sunset because it, it, it's one of, well, this is the best piece of public observatory real estate on the planet. It really is. And, and by doing that, they immerse themselves right into the universe. Every person that comes up to watch a real sunset, they're watching the changes of those colors. The, it, it's not just, well, there's the sun, it goes down. It, it's, it's the whole thing. It's, it's all of the lighting. And, and it puts them in a moment that, in fact, they desire. So I, I think that the, the attraction is always there, just often unconscious, and that it's very easy to reignite it in a variety of ways. If all mankind could look through that telescope, it would change the world. I mean, it's, it, you, if you just stood by the telescope and listened to people, and, and we've got pictures, you, you know, where a person sees the rings of Saturn for the first time, and, and they're just entertained, awed, amused, everything uh, enriched. And so that's Griffith's doing, you know, that it's not just what have I learned about Saturn? It's how does this affect my perspective on myself? And it invariably will. You're doing this now, of course, uh, with a very strange technology. That, 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 that was actually my first experience to get to see that, that in action. So obviously it, it was entertaining. And, and then you were putting cogstones onto, yeah. onto tendrils. I'm going to grab a cog. Since you brought them up, I'm just going to grab one, if I can do this without. Yeah, so I'm making, I call them star stones because yeah. cogstone was not resonating with yeah. me. But, you know, that's, I, I've crafted these out of concrete. Yeah. The nifty thing about that is most people have no clue about cogstones. So by doing this, you will trigger people. What is this? And you can call them star stones and you can do anything you want with them. But there's going to be a certain population that says, huh, what's next? What do I find out here? Because people have no idea. You know, the, the fact is, peripherally from Los Angeles, it's easier for people in Los Angeles to imagine indigenous communities. But it's very hard, I think, for most people to populate this territory with people prior to European contact. But obviously, people were here for thousands of years, you know, making a living uh, and, and doing very nicely at that. And so the ability, uh, particularly with the decimation from the Spanish and the Mexicans and then the Angles, I mean, it's, it's a, over and over and over. It, it, it always is a wonder to me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Ed Krupp. I am Mercedes Dormy, and this program, Through the Portal, 
was presented in conjunction with my work, Portal for Tobangar, an augmented reality project that is part of the LACMA Time Snapchat Monumental Perspectives. This initiative is made possible by Snapchat. Additional support is provided by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This listening experience was produced by Sound Made Public with Tanya Katenjian, Claire Mullen, Jeremiah Moore, and Philip Wood. For more information about Portal for Tovangar, please visit lacma.org slash D-O-R-A-M-E. Thank you for listening.